Welcome to Wiki Hospitals, an honest look at one of the 21st century's biggest industries, healthcare. What actually happens during hospital errors? And why are health costs skyrocketing? Did you know that an entire ecosystem called startups offer fantastic solutions using modern technology and consumer-based services? However, many of their innovations are not being utilised. Bureaucrats and vested interests seem to be threatened by them. The more you know, the better choices you can make. Enjoy the show. So I'm introducing David Lester from NISM. An Australian entrepreneur. Uh, David, welcome to Wiki Hospitals. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be talking with you, Delia. Uh, now, David, perhaps you can give a brief overview of the, uh, the product that you're developing and how it can help people. Yeah, uh, so we're focusing on providing uh, services and solutions to help patients with epilepsy achieve better outcomes. So better outcomes basically means that we're helping them become seizure-free. At present, the methodology and the clinical practice is very poor, with about one-third of patients actually found to be resistant to therapy, which means they don't have good outcomes. And a big part of that, in talking to clinicians around the world, the, the biggest challenge they have is that they rely on the patients to keep accurate records on their seizures in order to achieve good outcomes. The reality is patients don't do that uh, for a variety of reasons, and epilepsy is even more complicated. So consequently, it's very, very challenging for the uh, clinician to develop patient management programs that are personalized and will provide these better outcomes. So while the ultimate methodology for capturing seizures would be uh, EEG methodologies, this is a very expensive and not patient-friendly methodology. We're using wearable sensors that have been found to be correlating with patients' seizures. Uh, and these are sensors that capture activities such as motion, heart rate, galvanic skin response by the transdermal activity, sleep, and a variety of other physiological measures. But what we are doing is we're integrating these various solutions, these uh, sensor activities, to come up with personalized methodology for capturing that patient's seizures over time. And that, that's a critical point. And the clinicians want to see this over extended periods of time. And that comes back to, again, using the EEG methodology, whereas now you can monitor up to five days per patient using EEG. You have to have them hospitalized to do it. So, again, our methodologies will allow the patients to undergo their regular daily activities while capturing this information continuously. We provide specific analytics. And ultimately, what we do is provide the clinician with regular updates as to what is going to seizures, how often they are, the intensity, and the information that clinicians really need. Uh, in today's world, if people are to be diagnosed with epilepsy, uh, they have to be admitted to hospital, they have to have an EEG, which is a whole lot of electrodes put all over their skull, they have to be in for up to a week, it's a slow process, and even just booking in for an epilepsy unit could take six months. I mean, how many different types of epilepsy are there? Did you mention last time we spoke? Yes, um, there's a, a variety of different epileptic seizure types, but the reality is about five or six of them are the dominant ones. And some of them are very, very difficult to capture. 
The other complexity is that every patient will have at least two or three of these different seizure types. But the bigger challenge is that they'll express them in their own unique, personalized way. So every patient has a different seizure profile. Um, to give us an idea, what's the percentage of people in the population that have uh, epilepsy? So it's pretty much globally uniform, about 1%. Interestingly, a very recent report in the US it said it's gone up to 1.3%. So it's climbing. And, and because people are living longer now, you're seeing more of an incidence. And you actually see higher incidence of epilepsy in people with Alzheimer's as well. So I think that that increased number you're seeing is really because of uh, keeping people alive a lot longer and, and living to older age. Uh, the reality for them is if they don't have a proper diagnosis, if they're waiting too long, or if the diagnosis is incorrect, then they get incorrect treatment and things become worse in some cases. Absolutely. And it's even more complicated than that because uh, not all seizures are epileptic, yet it's very difficult sometimes for the clinician to distinguish that based on just a single visit. And about 25% of those patients that have been diagnosed with seizures are non-epileptic. Yeah. And that's, to your point, Delia, you get a very, very different uh, intervention treatment for those patients than you would the others. And so consequently, you're getting the wrong patient treatment, the impact on the patient, the impact on the family, and so on and so on. It's, it's very, very costly to uh, families and to the healthcare system. Yeah, people don't realise when you work in emergency or in hospitals, you certainly see patients coming in who appear to have seizures, but it's not, and it's linked to other issues. And I know from having worked in a neurology ward, the whole process of diagnosis is delayed, slow, often inaccurate. And it sounds as though your product is tending towards the new world of using smart wearable devices and then sucking in big data and then giving a much more accurate um, overview. Is, is that the case? Absolutely. The, the, you're right. The, the uh, smart technologies and the digital health are the way of the future, whether you're talking about a location where everyone is closely linked or whether they're remotely associated. This is the way of the future. I just came back from a visit to India, and obviously in India, um, where epilepsy is a really fascinating challenge, if you don't talk remote monitoring in any management of disease, they're not going to bother with you. And um, the, the reality is that that translates to better care, uh, and lower costs, it's significant improvement all over. So that, that's where it's going. The challenges in, um, in the Western world is when you bring in a new technology, uh, there's a lot of resistance generally to it because the clinician doesn't want to change their uh, standard of practice or standard of care. So what we're doing is working very, very closely with leading clinicians around the world to ensure that we're giving them services that into their daily practice that will not disrupt what they're doing. On the contrary, what it will do is allow them to analyze a lot more patients they're doing now far more effectively, which is what they want. The difference in what we do between us and a normal technology company is we're clinician-driven, not technology-driven. The technology we found is not an issue. It's about understanding what the clinician wants and how clinical practice actually works and making sure that you suit that practice. What sort of advice does the patient actually have to wear? Can you give an idea of what this involves for the patient? Well, we, we'd like to call it a compliant independent. In other words, we rely on the patient as little as possible. Because as I mentioned earlier on, when you're relying on diaries, something like that, which you think is relatively simple and would provide a lot of benefit patients, they don't do it. So basically, in our case, it's a matter of wearing the device. And every three to five days, you take the device off and then 
uh, recharge it. At that time of recharge, the information is then being uh, transferred into the uh, network up to our cloud-based system, and we manage the rest. So basically, it's the patient wearing it. Wearing it correctly is not really an issue uh, for what we're doing. It's very, very simple for putting on the device. And then, as I said, depending on, depending on what we're measuring, every three to five days, take it off, recharge it in a docking station, similar to what you see in the Fitbit or Apple Watch and this. Then once it's charged, which doesn't take long, put it back on again, and away you go. What size of a device are we talking? Is, is it large and bulky or is it small? So at this stage, the devices, I'll say, are what we call research, research devices. They're a little bit larger, uh, a little bit more cumbersome than um, like the Fitbit or uh, Apple Watch. The point about them is that Fitbit and Apple Watch, even though they're being used in clinical settings, are not clinical devices. And at this stage, uh, we've opted to use devices that have been proven to be clinically competent. And, and perform uh, at a level that's required for clinical. That company we've talked to quite closely with said, once we've determined the specifications which we get with this initial device that we're wearing, they will then be able to modify that to provide a smaller, more compact, patient-friendly device. So the initial device, I'd say, is uh, it's longer than about twice the length of an Apple Watch. It's got a, a, an elastic-type armband, not particularly friendly. It's got a couple of electrodes you've got to attach. So again, as I said, it doesn't look that great. We've had patients wearing them already for five days. They've had no problem wearing it. Yeah. Uh, but we expect as we evolve this uh, technology that we'll develop um, devices where the patient feels comfortable just walking around every day and, and not feel that they're stigmatized because they're wearing some sort of uh, a clinical device. And uh, for the viewers, that's in contrast to waiting up to six months to get into a, an epilepsy ward and then have an AEG um, tabs all over your head and then staying there for the weekend or longer and being hooked up to monitors continuously being not able to leave the unit. And then there's the other problem that once they leave the unit, it's all over. With our devices, uh, we, we're planning that they could potentially wear them for three to six months, depending on what the clinician actually is requiring. So um, they, they, this, this, you just can't do this in uh, using present day technologies. And uh, the, uh, the implications of having seizures can be uh, car accidents, people can die, you can uh, damage your brain if you continuously have seizures. So not having an accurately diagnosed epilepsy got enormous consequences for people. Absolutely. There's a chunk of people that actually can't work because of this. I mean, if you've got a seizure once every nine months, that, that's a different situation. But there's a lot of people that have seizures multiple times a week and can't get them under control. Then you consequently have no life. No life at all. It's, it's really a, a devastating disease under certain circumstances. Absolutely. People are non-compliant with medication, I believe up to 50%, and the epilepsy meds, uh, you know, can have some side effects, so they've got to be given with far more accuracy. That's right. And, and I think that's part of the challenge of, of that whole personalised medicine they're trying to achieve with epilepsy. They can't do it under present standards. We think we'll have a better chance of doing it. The other thing that I'd add to that is that because patient diaries uh, are also used in clinical trials, a lot of the big pharma companies that were in epilepsy have moved out because they found that the reliability of the data they capture using patient diaries were not acceptable and would not give them the value that would allow them to get new drugs in the market. So we, we also hoping we are engaged with pharma that we will see an increase of activity in pharma to bring even better drugs out on the market. So not just better using existing ones, but we'd seen the long term, we'd like to see better drugs coming out.
Now, you mentioned last time we spoke about uh, per head of population, how many neurologists uh, who diagnose epilepsy and specialise in this area are available in the UK. Can you just review that, please? Yeah, so in the UK, there's about 600,000 people with epilepsy, uh, and there's an estimated 50 or so epileptologists. Now, just coming back from India, it's even worse, not surprisingly. There's about uh, up to 14 million, 15 million people with epilepsy. And I was told by one of the leading practitioners that there's about 500 neurologists in the whole country that treat epilepsy. That's terrible. Look, I think these numbers are, are pretty much uniform. There's a, a dramatic shortage of experts in treating epilepsy. And I should point out that there's neurologists is good, uh, epileptologists are the best, GP is the worst. And a big problem with that is the you know, accessibility of the ep uh, epilepsy expert or even knowing that you'd require an epilepsy expert. So the outcomes very, very much dependent on, uh, at, at present practice, depend on the, the experience of that uh, doctor that you get. This goes back to the, your experiences in India where remote uh, monitoring is becoming the norm. Can you just explain to people a little bit how important this can be for um, the product that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, as I mentioned, there are very few experts around. They tend to be in the big cities. Yeah. They don't, they're not really in uh, remote areas at all, these remote villages. What's fascinating in the Indian health system is that many of the leading healthcare providers uh, have remote hospitals. So there's like, Wokhart has over 1,000 remote hospitals. Okay. And these are mobile hospitals that go out uh, to these remote sites. So there's other ones we talked about, hundreds. That, that this is the way it's managed. And you could see, that, so that's who we're in discussion with in India, uh, that we're beginning to broach stuff, and there's a lot of interest, is that they, that again, these people in remote villages wouldn't even know about or have even have any thoughts as to epilepsy and its management. So you, working with these uh, remote sort of uh, organizations will have the ability of leech, at least reaching uh, those potential patients, and subsequently then they can provide those devices Again, the information is sent back to the experts. Their analysis and uh, proposed intervention can then be transferred back to the local site for implementation execution. And that's what we see happening not only in India, but even in, in the UK, we see the same sort of thing. There's not enough doctors. We're going to have to require the GPs to play more of an active role. But the GPs will be interacting very closely with the, uh, the expert uh, epileptologists. And that's already... We've had discussions with the NHS in the UK, and that's why they're very excited about our methodologies. Tell me about the clinical trials that you're going into, whereabouts they are, and what the, what the plans are. So uh, we, we decided to initially uh, launch our products in the UK, and the reason for that is the NHS is very, very progressive in terms of introducing uh, digital health technologies. Uh, they'd say, I'd say, along with the Scandinavian countries, the most advanced in the world. So the first study we're doing is with, uh, in Scotland with the Scottish NHS, which is focusing on misdiagnosis of epileptic and non-epileptic seizures, specifically the convulsive types. And then we're establishing other trials in um, other locations in the UK that are, are actually focused on different aspects of epilepsy. Additionally, we've got a site in Portugal and uh, we're working with the leading epileptologists there to develop uh, an application there. And what again, the, what we do, as I mentioned before, is we go to these leading clinicians and say, what are your major issues? 
and then we work with them, uh, understanding the healthcare system and that the, the healthcare system will be willing to adopt it. Uh, then we work with them to develop a specific solution. So that's first solution will be to Scotland, which can then be translated to the rest of the UK. It then has the ability of, of uh, you know, translating to other countries in Europe. But what we've realized, because we provide a service, every demographic has unique requirements. So we have to start by developing solutions initially in that location. So it's been tough for me here because I've had some local Australian um, parents contact me saying their children are suffering with epilepsy. Can I help them? The challenge is that people have to understand it's, it's a, a long task to bring products to the level where they will be accepted into the clinical healthcare market. So for this first application, we see about a year and a half, which is very fast for normally for devices, which can take up to five years. That's because we have everything ready to go and it's uh, non-invasive and we're providing the clinician information to make decisions. The complexity of developing a medical device um, really uh, influences the length of time it takes to get to market. So if mums and dads here see this video and they want to access their product, you're telling me you've got to, they've got to wait at least a year and a half? Before well, look, we, we are working and doing some work, uh, do, doing some initial studies with the Royal Melbourne Hospital locally. Like in pharmaceuticals, uh, as we evolve, there'll be opportunities to join in in clinical studies rather than clinical trials. Access to this because, as I said, we are doing development with them. Uh, so they will be you know, assessing patients to come and join those studies. It, there will be a stage, I think, because we're seeing such demand, we will be able to release it to the general public. Uh, as long as they're working with clinicians that have worked with us to start using these sorts of devices. I can't put timelines on that. It'd be very risky to do that. Again, a lot of this is in place, as I said, and I don't think it'll take as long as we're even predicting to get a lot of these things to market or getting to the stage where they're ready for some internal use. You've spoken a bit about your son. Would you like to just revisit his issues and how he's um, reacted to them? Yeah, he was uh, at the age of about 17, uh, diagnosed with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. And I sort of, it's interesting talking to him. He, he noticed that a couple of times he started stuttering and stumbling uh, for words and, and getting lost. And I actually noticed at that time, not knowing as much as I do now about epilepsy, that he would stop and suddenly just become uh, immobile for about uh, 60 to 90 seconds. So we took him to a neurologist who's local, who was living in the States at that time, a very good neurology where we were living in New Jersey. And he said, uh, diagnosed him as having juvenile myoclonic epilepsy and put him on a medication. Because it's, that's a chronic disease, and because of my background, I was working at Pfizer headquarters in New York at that time. I said, well, let's get a second opinion. So I asked my colleagues from Pfizer and they referred me to the top epilepsy uh, specialist for uh, juveniles in New York, probably in the East Coast. I got on to see him very rapidly through my connections. He went through and said the diagnosis was correct, but the drug was wrong. Okay. He said, I would not provide that drug to youth because they have all sorts of side effects that are, are really horrendous. So he put him on a different drug. I'd say the seizures, it, it took my son uh, having a grand mal to realize you've got to take the drug every day, which was very important. But my son, when I talked to him, said it took about five years until he felt good. And we don't quite know what feel good means uh, because it's not just the seizures. There's a lot of other things going on with epilepsy. And, and certainly, yes, the, that physical 
expression of seizure may have been under control, and it was under control earlier. But there's other activities, because you're dealing with the brain, obviously, that we just can't really quite get a handle on. And um, that makes it a challenge. But to be honest, Delia, our platform, start where it starts, is an agnostic platform to the technology that comes in. So we are capable of in integrating imaging, very high-powered imaging data, genomics data, uh, any form of data that we want, we can integrate into it. So why I mention that is because when you start putting all this data together, you start to get a better picture of what that person's uh, phenotype in terms of the disease actually is. So we're very, very optimistic over it. It'll take a while, but we hope in like over the next five years, you start to see this more generalized overview of a patient which would be sitting on our platform. It's almost like a, a portal, a mission that captures everything that's relevant to the patient. Well, that's a huge difference to what we currently have, which is really hit and miss. They come in on ad hoc uh, times for appointments, maybe every two months. And uh, like you said, they present a diary, not very scientific, and they get what might or might not be the correct treatment. That's right. And they've got to keep, then they have to come back and they ask how they're doing. And so then it's modified. And that's what happened with my son. I was every six months. So it took a long time until he basically became seizure free. And another challenge I noticed that that, that, that causes the patient is that if the patient's not getting good outcomes in a timely manner. They stop trusting the doctor. And if you don't trust the doctor, you're not going to get good care. That relationship is also another added uh, impact I think we can have with our technology. So better outcomes for the patient means more compliance with their treatments. Absolutely. And there have been a couple of clinicians, one actually we've met in India and one in Israel, that have talked specifically about that compliance issue. We're beginning to discuss, can we provide some tools to make it a little bit better? It's generally found that the young, the teenagers, and that are the least compliant because they don't want to be labelled as having some disease. It's the last thing they want. So it's another aspect that with our platform, maybe not using those sensors we've got, but using other tools we can plug into the platform that we, we can start to address that issue as well because we understand that's a very big worry uh, for the carers, uh, not for the, as I said, not for the patients because they think they're immortal. Can you talk about the data that this is currently going to pick up and then the other added data? You've talked about movement, but also then skin temperature and other things as well. Yes, yeah, so the, the basic unit that we've got, the core unit, is a very high-powered Fitbit, if you want to talk about it simply. It captures motion in three different ways. It captures it through accelerometry, captures it through magnetometry, and it captures it through the third one, uh, GPS. Uh, and so what you end up is with an X, Y, and Z axis for each one of those different types of activity are capturing. That means you've got nine axes of motion. Is a lot of information. So Potentially, what you can do with that is you can say not only are they moving, you can actually define what sort of movement they actually have. So like in misdiagnosis, there's evidence that um, people with non-epileptic seizures have very specific arm, specific arm motions. We will be able to capture that. Uh, then there's the ability to capture heart rate uh, through pulse oximetry. It's not the optimal, but it's good enough for these sort of methods. And from there, you can get heart rate variability, which a lot of people have talked about uh, as a very good measure for uh, seizures. There is, as you mentioned, the skin temperature, temperature, the skin conductance. So the skin temperature, the skin conductance, the heart rate are sensors that you plug into that core activity sense that I talked about uh, initially, the core basis. You also can plug, plug electrocardiogram um, leads, two of them, 
if you want to get very accurate cardiovascular measurements. Yeah. And you can plug in leads and sensors for electromyogram, which is muscle activity as well. And up there, you can also deduce sleep. You can do a whole variety of different deduced activities. And, and what we see is a combination of two or three of these activities that will be specific for that type of epilepsy that we're looking at. That distinguishes us from anyone else up until now. All of the research is done where they just use a single type of activity. It's very old-fashioned and it's very inaccurate. It's not easy, too. That's the thing. You need some very, very powerful analytics to come along. And we did, we're working with some extremely highly recognised groups around the world that do these analytics for us. Can you give us a little bit about your background? I mean, you've been a, a serial entrepreneur. No, I didn't start as a serial entrepreneur. I, I started in the basic research world. I started in Australia, went to Israel, went to the States. And after about 15 years, I came to the conclusion that there are better researchers than I am, even though I was successful at it. So I said, let's try something else. So I was in the US at the time, and I got accepted uh, into the US Food and Drug Administration doing what's called regulatory research. And I spent a fair amount of time there and I moved up the ranks, did very well. And I was trying at that time also to bring new methodologies into clinical trials to help move them along. I realized it was it's very hard to be innovative in the FDA at that time. So I then moved into the pharmaceutical world where initially I was with Pharmacia and I was responsible for introducing new technologies in the clinical trials. They were acquired by Pfizer, and I moved to Pfizer headquarters in New York, where it wasn't so much clinical trials, we're looking at clinical practice saying, if we add other healthcare technologies, such as diagnostic to a, a drug, we end up with better outcomes. It was a, a very exciting time in pharma, but I realized after a period of time, this was all about pharma just finding new ways of marketing their drugs. They weren't really that committed to it. So I left them, and then I started my career as an uh, entrepreneur. I joined a couple of companies. One of them was very, very controversial. I learned a lot from those two, first two companies and how not to run a company. And then I started off on my own. I had a few attempts. There's one that's still ongoing, a Boston-based company called Inside Tracker, which is focusing on health and wellness. A very interesting product about diagnostics for health and wellness for athletes. I came back to Australia for personal reasons. I uh, tried working with the CSIRO and Monash and realized that I'm not suitable for large organizations. Then eventually came down after advising and mentoring some companies, said, you know what, get back with what you do. And hence, about two and a half years ago, I started Neeson. So it's been a long journey. And I, I think because of all the experiences I've had, good and bad, this is going to be the best. Very, very exciting, the response we've seen globally uh, from the clinicians around the world and patients. Uh, so I think this one's the long haul and uh, we'll take it all the way into the finish line. Well, when people work on the ground floor, they see all the errors and the inaccuracies that the bureaucrats don't and the public don't. You know, Julia, healthcare should be a lot better than it is. It's just a giant behemoth that's so much money behind it. It's very resistant to change. And that's the key point was finding where is that soft spot, where, where who's really feeling the pain and who's in, in a position to change things? It's different in every disease, but it took us about, about a year to figure out in epilepsy where is it, and it's different in every country. But you also have the power of relatives who, if someone they love is sick and they're not getting the right answer, more and more becoming willing to argue and get online and look around and see what else is available. I mean, you raise a great point in that the, those advocacy groups uh, play a major role 
in, in expressing the voice of the patient. In Australia, they're active. Um, they just don't have the power and the money that you see in the UK or in the US. You, you see in the US how extraordinarily powerful they are. Epilepsy Foundation is very big in the States and um, it's just tough in Australia because people don't give enough money to support these charities. They're spending too much on horse racing and gambling and all this, whereas actually providing money that will help their, them and their families and ultimately the community. It's a shame it's not, you don't see more of that, that sort of giving in Australia. And do you have um, words of wisdom for Australian entrepreneurs because it's not an easy country? to be uh, setting down this path? Yeah, I think if you're going in that med tech space, uh, bio, so I'd say, first of all, biotech's good luck. Uh, Australia's had limited success. It's quietened down. Now it's med tech. It's these medical devices and that. It, the key thing you hear anywhere in the world, first of all, it's your management team. If you look at my management team, I'm in Melbourne. I've got two people in the US and two people in the UK and one in Portugal, right? And why I've got those people is because they're the best around. That's the first thing. Secondly, your investors. You need investors that are going to give that good value, not just money, because there is good and bad money. Some investors can drive you nuts. Uh, they can ask for the wrong terms for investment, and, and you know they can do a lot of harm. The third thing is the board of directors and the advisory boards. Get the best people in the world and understand that from day one, you're in a global community that's trying to provide global resources. So the more that that board of directors and advisory board is global, the more that you'll understand the global sort of needs. And why that's so important is because that helps you to identify your first market that you should be going after. So to Australian entrepreneurs, I'd say it won't be the Australian market. It really won't because that's really messy and complex. That's a very big challenge in finding that first market. That's probably the biggest challenge. And then the other thing, as I was saying, put the components together to make sure you set the company up right. And get prepared to fail, because it's going to happen time and time again. From my point of view, having worked in the health industry, it's been so inaccurate in many, many areas. And I just love it when things come along that are part of the modern world. And what you're describing is part of um, the 21st century. I mean, when I was working in the pharmaceutical industry, we were looking at these technologies in the early 2000s. They were there. They've been around a long time. It's a challenge translating to good applications the, all these fantastic technologies. Even though you've heard me talk technology, 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 as I said before, I'm driven by the clinicians, I'm driven by the clinical need. I can generally find a technological solution, even if I have to compromise sometimes, that will serve that purpose. But that's the key thing is focus on the need. Forget about building a product and then figure out what you're going to do it for. You will fail, guaranteed. Okay, so look for the problem to solve rather than the product to present. Absolutely. Well, do you think that you have some way that we could improve where we support or encourage entrepreneurs in Australia? Yeah, look, I mean, investment's a big, big issue. There's a number of challenges. First of all, I think the Australian government and state governments don't have long-term views of this industry, as you see in countries like the US and Israel and now in the UK. But I think also the individual investors, we need more angel investors that understand healthcare because a lot of them come from engineering backgrounds, don't understand clinical we know there's a lot of wealthy doctors out there. It'd be great if they could set up some sort of consortium. And just in general, I think, um, you know, the high net worth people, if they can be a little bit more risk-taking, that would make a huge difference. And they actually will end up in better returns. It would make a big difference on the local environment in terms of successes. There's a lot of activity going on, but most of them will fail. 
largely for those reasons, you don't have the management team, you don't have the money. Well, thank you very much, David, for speaking to Wiki Hospitals. What, in about a year and a half, your clinical trials should be completed uh, in the UK. And when do you think your product might be coming to Australia? If we do it, the regulatory route, we'd have to go through the TGA here. Look, we'll see. I mentioned a year and a half. It could go faster. If we see that it's going very, very well, we will approach the TGA earlier on. We suspect that uh, the requirements are going to be relatively minimal because it's a non-invasive device. So keep your fingers crossed, one and a half to two years could well be in Australia as well. And could we say that neurologists, if they're interested, could contact the Royal Melbourne Hospital because uh, some trials are going through there? Yeah, I, I think you can. They're very busy. It may be easier just to contact me via our site, info at nissan.com, uh, and then we can, we'd be happy to refer them uh, to those clinicians. I, I respect their time, and I don't... So I'm happy to do a bit of a screening for them. Well, thank you very much for this interview, David. We look forward to your product coming onto the market and giving people with epilepsy and their families much, much, much more accurate diagnosis and treatment. Thanks for the opportunity, Peter.